Gratitude That's my everyday What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Quantum Coffee. Really, really special episode this time around. It is my first live podcast I did, and it wasn't like live, real life in person. I do plan on doing that eventually. No, this one was uh, kind of like a webinar, had people log in and register, and they were actually attending the podcast recording uh, with uh, buddy Drew Manning, um, really amazing man. And we had a really incredible conversation. He just moved to Hawaii two months ago, and he owns a company called Fit to Fat to Fit, and his journey of really... Um, you know, he talks a lot about it in the show, but basically he gained 60, 70 pounds in six months and then lost it all. Really uh, healthy, athletic dude. Uh, and he really wanted to empathize with his, uh, his coaching clients and understand why it was so challenging for people to lose weight, which I mean, to actually go through that and do that, really impressive. His story is incredible. He has a lot of wisdom and, and actual compassion for people that struggle with this type of stuff, which is a huge issue in our society and culture. It's something I struggle with not only my body image issues, but eating habits from football. So I learned a lot from this episode. I know you will too. Uh, we talk, you know, first half of the show, a lot about his fit to fat to fit journey. And then we dive into some of the unanswerable questions, his spiritual journey, his transformation, uh, growing up in a Mormon church and, and what it was like to transition out of that uh, and, and, and the courage it takes to do that. Uh, very relatable experience with me. We talk about that uh, and just a lot of, of real profound lessons. So I hope you get a lot out of this podcast. I hope you get as much as I did. Um, I will say that um, Drew did record outside. So there is a little bit of traffic in the background. I hope it is not too disruptive to the podcast because there is a lot of incredible information in this in the show. So stick through it. I'm going to have my podcast editor. Shout out to Graham for doing an amazing job of really minimizing the distraction and the background noise. Uh, I hope it's good. And you know, it's not as bad as, as you think. I think it kind of muffles off in the background. So definitely worth it. Check it out. Um, and if you're interested in joining some live podcasts, uh, definitely uh, excited. I love it. I'm going to do some more of these. Um, and if you want to support this podcast uh, and have access to those live recordings uh, and become a premium member, it not only supports this podcast financially, it helps me you know, pay Graham, my sound editor, who's one of the best, uh, and all my other team members that really helped me produce this thing and get it out live to you guys. Um, if you want to help support this podcast financially, it's $7 a month. That's it. For the price of a cup of coffee from Starbucks, a latte, not just a dark, you know, black coffee, which I get, which is still expensive. It's like $2, $2.50. But for the price of a latte, you can support this podcast, you know, get access to extended episodes, live recordings, uh, and other amazing premium content. Uh, and it would really just, I would appreciate it deeply, profoundly. So thank you for those of you that are premium members. It means a lot to me. Uh, I appreciate the support. There's actually a discount too, if you want to do a, a year subscription, um, where you get, you get two months for free. So if you want to support me in that way, go check it out. If you, you also can support me for free by simply pausing this show right now, leaving a five-star review. It literally takes two seconds. And go over to wherever you listen to podcasts, Press five star, leave a few nice words, you know, talk about my beard, talk about me as a person, talk about how much you love me, how much you love the podcast, whatever it is, just take two seconds. That would do a huge, huge favor for me and help me grow my audience. It's really all about the ratings, the algorithms and all that stuff. I don't really know how it works, 
But I know the only, the only thing that really matters is those ratings. So if you want to help me out, go do that. I'd really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. And without further ado, uh, I really hope you enjoy this podcast with my good buddy, Drew Manning. Drew, what's up, brother? How you doing? Yo, what's up, bro? Aloha. <laughs> Aloha from Hawaii. Just moved there. How's it, how's it treating you, man? Good, man. I, have, I used to live here in 2015, so I'm familiar with this island. The big island is actually where my dad's from. My dad was, is part Hawaiian, and he was born and raised on this island, and his dad was born and raised on this island. So I kind of grew up coming here, uh, and after living here in 2015, I decided to move back in 2021. And it's been uh, it's been a, an interesting transition uh, going from Utah to here. It's been a lot of uh, stressful moments, but also a lot of beautiful moments too. It's, it's beautiful out here. Yeah, so it's in your blood, man. That's really cool. What's so? What's yeah. the, what was the reason behind moving? You just wanted to slow down, change the environment. What was that all about? And short story. Um, ever since I lived here in 2015, I was actually at that time going through my divorce with my ex-wife, yes. um, and so we decided to move out here together as a divorced family with their two daughters and it was a great place for us to heal individually and ever since then she's wanted to move back but you know with work and just a lot of moving parts it didn't really happen and or it didn't happen until recently where the stars kind of aligned where all of us me her her fiance and our two daughters could could move out here together um it just so happened that we could all do that because i work from home she's pretty much retired her and our fiance retired and so long story short we decided to move back here like modern family situation you know like uh we get along pretty well wow. we pretty well so interesting well that's beautiful yeah. that takes a lot of real yeah. real conscious relating to, to get to a point to work through your own stuff to, to show up as a family dynamic and clean that energy out so that's really quite impressive man proud of you yeah thank you man i appreciate that it's it's worth it in the end especially you know i think with divorce in my opinion is a lot of people, their ego gets in the way and they try and make the other person suffer because they're upset about something and whether it's right or wrong, like doesn't really matter. The kids are the ones that end up suffering. And so I've always kind of approached it from a place of like, what's best for my girls? It's best for my girls to see their mom and their dad still interact with each other, still be nice to each other. Like that would suck if we had to do two separate birthdays and two separate holidays because we can't be in the same room together. That's why I love the book, Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. Highly Good recommend one. that book to so many people, especially if you're going through a divorce. <laughs> it, it's hard just to get rid of your ego, but it's so important because so much suffering happens at the expense of our own ego. Yeah, and I think, I think with divorce, like, and even any kind of relationship where you're kind of energetically not aligned and you try to like make it like feel okay or not try to show that energy in front of the kids. But I mean, kids are very sensitive and open to energy and they can really tell and it affects them even more when they're, when you're not truthful and honest. So being able to kind of include that and in them in the experience and really clean that energy up between, you know, you and your partner is really, really beautiful. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. This is the first time for those of you that are listening, uh, you know, on Apple or Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, me and Drew are doing a live podcast right now uh, over a webinar on Zoom, not live in person. Um, and eventually, I want to kind of do that. I think it'd be really cool. Um, but yeah, yeah, so Drew's my first kind of guinea pig with doing this live. We have a few people on <laughs> watching us record, which is really cool. So um, if you are on this um, webinar live watching us and if you have any questions for me or Drew, go ahead and put it in the chat box and we'll, we'll definitely uh, include you guys in the discussion. 
Um, really excited about that. Um, but yeah, Drew, go ahead and um, maybe introduce yourself a little bit about who you are, and then we can kind of dive into some of these unanswerable questions of the universe and talk about your, your journey sure. of transformation and the work that you do. Yeah, man, let's go deep. Um, so my journey, most people know me as the fit to fit to fit guy, uh, which is something I did in 2011. Um, a little bit of backstory before I get to that though, I grew up in a family of 11 brothers and sisters and my parents had 11 kids. We all played sports, football and wrestling. I played sports from a very young age. So I was always fit, healthy, active for the most part, was never overweight. And then fast forward, you know, to 2009, I decided to become certified as a personal trainer. And here I was, someone who had never been overweight a day in my life, trying to help people who were overweight pretty much the majority of their life. And so there's an obvious disconnect because in my mind, I'm like, why do people struggle with eating healthy food consistently? And why do they struggle with going to the gym? Like my clients would tell me, oh, Drew, I was following your meal plans. I was doing good. But this weekend, you know, I went out with the boys and had a drink and then the drink turned into a pizza. And then, you know, and then they're like, I was sore. I didn't get to the gym. And I'm like, well, why don't you just do it? Why don't you put down the junk food and just do the hard work, right? Because that's the way I approach like wrestling and football and life in general was like, you just do it, right? Um, and uh, yeah, obviously that didn't work with them. And one of my clients told me, you know, Drew, you don't understand how hard it is for me or for people like me because it's it's always been hard for me. And they're like, for you, it's always been easy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. I need to learn why it's so hard. And so I decided, I was thinking of ideas and it was like this light bulb went off. This idea entered my mind and then this light bulb went off. Like, what if you actually did this? And the idea was, what if I got fat on purpose and documented the whole journey to experience what it's like to be overweight? How else am I going to know what it's like to be overweight if I've never been overweight? And so this idea, it was crazy, risky, came into my mind and it almost felt like a calling. Like, I'm actually really going to do this. And so I checked with my wife at the time. I called family members and friends. I'm like, hey, what do you guys think of this idea? Everyone's like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. You should totally do it. And so I decided to do it. This is back in 2011. <laughs> and to make a long story short, for six months, I said no exercise. So not no working out at all. For you six didn't work months. out for six months. No, no, that was oh. one of the rules. So, you know, wow. and then... And then I can eat whatever I wanted to. But what I wanted to do with the food is I've seen Super Size Me by Morgan Spurlock, right? Where he, he eats McDonald's for 30 days straight, right? <laughs> um, and we all know fast food is unhealthy for us. But I wanted to focus on everyday foods that we grew up with here in the, in the United States, mostly like in the 70s and 80s. It's like all the processed you know, sugary cereals, right? Every Saturday morning, sugary cereal for breakfast, of course. <laughs> Juices, granola bars, chips, cookies, crackers, sugary sodas. Hot Pockets, uh, Top Ramen, Mac and Cheese, SpaghettiOs, like all this processed food that we have. And that's the food I focus on. And I ended up putting on 75 pounds in those six months. And it was one of the hardest, most humbling things I've ever experienced. A lot of valuable lessons we can talk about. And then the next six months, I lost that weight. So I walked the walk and put my money where my mouth is. But I, and so I got back to fit, but I came out of, out of it with a whole new perspective on life and a whole new perspective on transformation. And I realized just how wrong I was in my approach to helping people and how uh, my approach was not even close to really helping people. Um, and that's kind of like where my journey began. Yeah. Wow. I have so many questions. And yeah, first yeah. of all, I want to say how, how incredible it is for you to like really show up 
and, you know, wanting to empathize with the people you're working with and really understand their perspective on a deeper level. I think that's really cool. And a lot of people really, you know, wouldn't really go there. Obviously they haven't. And so for you to, to show up and do that, it's really, really impressive. I'm excited to talk a lot about the, the lessons that, that came up for you, but I do want to know, like, yeah. I guess we'll start with the questions that are coming to mind because there's so many of them. What was it like being an athlete, you know, physically active? I just can't imagine what I would feel like, you know, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, like my awareness, my fatigue, lethargy, like all of this for not working out for six months. How yeah. was that? That was, that's probably one of the hardest parts because you start to realize how much of exercise is your therapy. Um, you know, it's your release, it's your stress reliever and not having that stress reliever, not having a stress reliever transitions into something else. Well, how else am I going to relieve stress? And it was really interesting, you know, not being able to work out. It, it, it almost created this identity crisis where all of a sudden I didn't know who I was anymore. Uh, my identity was built around Drew the fit guy. Kind of like as a former athlete, you're like, hey, I am this professional athlete and that's my identity. I was Drew this fit guy. And then becoming overweight, not working out, really, really messed with my head where I, I did have some freak out moments where I wanted to go up to strangers in the street and explain to them like, hey, I'm not really overweight. This is just an experiment. I know you don't know me, but here, let me show you my before picture. This is what it used to look like. And, and go to my website. And I wanted to explain to people why I was overweight because I was so uncomfortable because my identity was based on my body image as my self-image. And that, that became my identity. Once I lost that identity, and I didn't really know who I was without that. Like, who am I without a fit body? I just kind of freaked out and hit this identity crisis. But that's where I learned so many valuable lessons. And one of them is that I am and we are more than just our physical bodies. The problems that we, you know, the way we've been conditioned and programmed is to believe that our identity is based on what our body looks like because this world that we live in, they judge us so harshly based on our body image. And so it's hard not to do that uh, because you you naturally do that where someone comments on your body and as you grow older, you start to become more aware of like, oh, maybe I am weird. Maybe I am like fat. Maybe I am ugly because people are telling me that. You start to believe those stories, those myths, those projections of other people. And then you kind of create this identity around that. That makes sense. And so yeah. for me, doing fit at fit the first time created this identity crisis where having no exercise really messed with my head more than I thought it was. I thought it would. And this is why I'm trying to tell people transformation is not just about calories in and calories out and like working out. Like that's part of it, but it's so much more mental and emotional than people think. And that's what I learned from doing fit to fit, fit that first time. You said the first time. Have you done this the second time? <laughs> I just got done doing it uh, as a 40-year-old. It was called Fit to Fat to 40. Um, and I just finished it in May of 2021. So um, from August through December, I put on 62 pounds. <laughs> and then I turned 40 on December 27th. And then starting in January, I was the journey back to fit. And so I lost those 62 pounds on uh, by May 7th. And so this was just not too long ago that I did it a second time. And it was humbled even more. It was even harder the second time around. And um, yeah, it, it kicked my ass. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so, so what was the big difference between the first time and the second time? Was, it, was there something, I mean, obviously being older, is there some... Uh, realization of the metabolism myth that as you get older, metabolism slows down. Was it more challenging because you are older? Um, that's what I wanted to address and like figure out and wanted to take people on this journey. Like, let's see, 
you know, if I can do this as a 40 year old, because yes, if, you know, from a scientific perspective, your body, your metabolism, your hormones do change as you age. That's just how the cycle of life is. And yeah, when you become older, it can be harder, but I wanted to show people, yes, it might be harder, but it's still possible. And so I really wanted to do this experiment again, a second time, mostly because it, when I did it the first time in 2011, not too many people were on social media. You know what I'm saying? Like not too many people got to see it as it was happening because social media wasn't what it is today. Like there was, there was Facebook and there was YouTube for the most part, but there was no Facebook lives. There was no Insta stories. There was no like um, this ability to interact with people as the, as the journey is happening. So I wanted to do it again as a 40 year old to show that demographic, like, Hey, we're 40 now. It, it is harder, but it's still possible. And here's how we're going to do it. Um, and then also doing a second time to really spread my message of empathy and the importance of having empathy. Cause I wanted to show people that my transformation isn't just about the physical side and everyone else's transformation isn't just about, Oh, figuring out their the perfect macros and the perfect diet and the perfect workout program so that they'll get this body and then all their problems go away. And then they're all of a sudden happier. Mm. It's really, um, this new perception of how to look at transformation and what success looks like in health and fitness and what it doesn't look like. So I really wanted to do it a second time so people could really listen to my message of more empathy, a better understanding on the mental emotional side, and they could see the ins and outs and the roller coasters of emotions as I was going through this journey. Yeah, it's beautiful, man. I'm, I'm really excited to dive because it's so much deeper than just the physical, <laughs> right? There's so much deeper emotional and, and stories and how you're showing up and your limiting beliefs and your fears and resistances. And I'm excited to dive into that. But I have one more question. How... Was it more sure. difficult to gain the weight or lose the weight? And what was kind of the different challenges with both of those? Good question. So I'll, I'll kind of use, I'll kind of compare both journeys in this sense, but to gain the weight wasn't necessarily hard in the sense that like, you know, you put the food in your mouth and you eat it. It tastes delicious. The food tastes really good, man. I'm not going to lie. Like cinnamon toast crunch is Were my jam. Were you able jam. to enjoy it or did you I, get like lost oh, into yeah. like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> no. I was able to enjoy it in the moment, but here's the yeah. thing. It's a very short lived temporary dopamine hit. Like it, you feel great for a minute and then your digestion is jacked up. Your energy is like all over the place because you get a big spike in blood sugar and then a crash. Then you eat more food. You get another spike and crash, which is exhausting on your, 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 your physical body, but also mentally, emotionally, it affects your sleep more than you think. It affects your libido. It affects your motivation levels. It affects your hormones. Um, so many things are affected by it. Um, these these journeys that um, you know gaining the weight. When people ask that question, it, it's kind of simple to say, "Oh, yeah, it's easier to gain the weight than lose the weight." But it's it's so much more complex than that because the emotional side of gaining weight is freaking hard. Because, like I said, the identity crisis, feeling awful all the time, um, you know, uh, very lethargic, uh, sleep deprived, is not fun. Because you're you know, so many things are affected by the food that you eat which then affects your hormones, which then affects your sleep, which affects your mood, which affects your energy levels, which affects your ability to show up as a, as a dad, a, a, a boyfriend or a husband, like whatever it is, whatever your roles or hats you wear, you trying to show up when you're super unhealthy physically affects your mental, emotional, spiritual life more than you think. So both journeys were hard to gain the weight in the sense that you're kind of losing this part of you, right? And you know, like, it just does not feel good day in and it, it, yeah, sure. A cheap meal but, or a cheap weekend, like having like a bunch of junk food, you can recover from that pretty quickly, but doing that for four months straight or six months straight is really, really exhausting on the, on the physical body and the mental, emotional, spiritual bodies as well. Um, 
And so, yeah, gaining weight, it, it's easier in the sense of like, yeah, you're just putting the food in front of your face and you, you're, you don't have to be disciplined. You don't have to count macros or anything like that. You don't have to like feel hungry ever. <laughs> so there are some like parts that are easier, some parts that are harder. Losing the weight on both those journeys is freaking hard because, um, you know, you're metabolically unhealthy. You're, 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 uh, the discipline, like going from one extreme of like doing whatever you want, whenever you want to then having to be disciplined and having to be, you know, control those cravings is a lot harder than people think. And this is what I'm trying to, to show people that are, have always been skinny or who've always been fit. And like, they judge people who are, who are overweight and say things like just eat less and work out. Like what, why can't you do that? Why stop being lazy? It's like, yeah, everyone knows that. And if they had the ability to do that, everyone would do it, but it's so much more mental and emotional than people think it's tied to trauma and abuse and emotional challenges in life. And that's why people overeat. And that's why people can't stop eating is because, you know, food becomes their drug. And to break that cycle is really, really, really hard because it's decades of, you know, self-abuse and all kinds of things like that. And it's just it's a lot more complex than we think it is. So gaining the weight, losing the weight, all of it's hard. It's like mm. choose your heart. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm sure like like that transition of like coming up like, OK, I, I can see I gained this weight and I, I'm almost done with this phase of it. And then transitioning into the losing weight, I'm sure that initial transition phase is where a lot of people get stuck because their their habits and their routines are just saying they're like, I'm going to eat well for a couple of days. And it's like those cravings come back, their body's craving that stuff. And it's hard to have that discipline in that transition to create those new habits and new neural pathways. I mean, I had a very similar thing with, with football, right? I had to be 300 pounds when I was playing and I was constantly able to eat whatever I want. I actually had to force myself to eat to keep that amount of weight on. And one of the challenges I still face to this day is this feeling like my whole life, I, I had to be full. Like if I, I didn't have that full feeling and as soon as I got hungry, I was like, I need to find food because I'm going to lose too much weight. And so that's one of my, my biggest things is, is stopping before I'm full and like satisfying myself and being able to control that. And I've gotten to a really good place. I think intermittent fasting has really helped me because then I can not, I can, you know, control the calorie intake, not having to stop mid meal, which is one of the hardest things for an offensive lineman to do. So talk about that yeah. the transition and creating the new habits and how long did it take you to get back into a rhythm, um, you know, back into these old habits and, and what went, what went through your mind and your body during that transition to try and instill those new habits? Because I think that's really where the lessons are for people yeah. right, at that point. Yeah. Let me kind of uh, tell you how it was the first experience. Cause that was very new for me. Um, the, back in 2011, 2012, when I lost weight the first time, transitioning from eating junk food for six months to then eating healthy food. So going from like 6,000 calories to 2,000 calories, uh, you know, and eating processed foods to eating real whole foods. Those first two weeks sucked really, really bad and were hell for me to go through because it was interesting. I thought, oh, once I start eating healthy, my body's going to feel great. And the opposite of that is true. Your body fights back against you in a way where it wants the high that it's received from those processed foods for the past six months, your body gets addicted to that. And so when I tried to feed myself healthy, you know, whole foods, I was hungrier all the time. I was moodier. Uh, the food didn't taste nearly as good. Um, I was, you know, had headaches. I felt, you know, lack of energy, all kinds of things. And it's like your body's getting off of a drug. You have to go through this withdrawal symptom phase where it's not fun. It's not enjoyable. And you just kind of have to sweat it out, tough it out, and just realize that this sucks. It's going to get easier. But those first two weeks, a lot of people quit because it's like the food doesn't taste good. They don't feel great. Like they see in the ads online of like, oh, eat healthy and be happier. It's like, 
it sucks sometimes because your body is so accustomed to the processed foods and to like detox from that takes a good two, three weeks for a lot of people. But it clicked for me when I went through that. I was like, this is what my clients have been telling me when I would give them a meal plan and, and a workout program, say, okay, go and do this and be strict with it. And they would try their best. And like, you know, those cravings from soda or the emotional pain of life, they have been so accustomed to reaching for a certain food, cake, chocolate, ice cream, wine, whatever it is. And to break that habit is really, really hard because your body is like, we, you, it's become addicted to that. And so it clicked for me, man, I was so wrong in what I, the way I would have, expect people to have discipline. Like, hey, just willpower your way through this. It's like telling a drug, drug addict, like, hey, just go stop doing drugs. Why don't you just stop doing them? And then you won't be addicted to them anymore. Though. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I know. But uh, exactly. But that's what I want to show people is our perception mm. of like getting off of food is like, just stop doing it. But then we have more compassion or understanding for a drug addict because like, oh, yeah, drugs are bad and they're powerful stuff. Food is, in my opinion, way more powerful because it's it's legal, it's accessible, it's affordable. It tastes freaking good. And yes, everyone eats it. It be addictive, right? <laughs> exactly. There's millions of dollars spent on research to make these foods addictive on a biological level. And so you're fighting against biology, but you're also fighting against, you know, psychology of of wiring your brain to, Hey, I'm stressed out. I need candy bar or, Hey, I'm going through hard times. I need some alcohol or, you know what? It's a Friday. I deserve, you know, pizza and beer with the boys or, you know what I'm saying? Or it's, it's a, you know, I had a hard, I got in a fight with my spouse. I'm going to go do whatever. It's like, we look for these reasons to, and we program our brains to look for these substances to numb the pain of life. And that's why that, like, I think food becomes way more addictive than, than, you know, certain drugs because it's more accessible to your average person. And most people aren't going to go out of their way to find cocaine and heroin because it's hard, it's illegal, and you don't know what's going to happen. But people are like, yeah, ice cream feels safe to me. Or, you know, wine, like I can eat that all day and no one's going to come knocking down my door and like arrest me. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Totally. So it's it's a little bit different. And um, that's why I have so much empathy for those that struggle with transformation because like you guys, I used to be the person that used to think, you know, why can't people just have willpower and why don't people just be more disciplined until I did this experiment. And now I have more empathy towards those that struggle because I know that it's so much more complex for them than just eating less and working out more. So this whole journey of fit to fat to fit doing it back in 2011, doing it again has really opened up my eyes to just how wrong the fitness industry is and their approach to trying to help people and how, how judgmental we can be and, and expect people just to like stop eating so much. And so that's why I'm trying to bring more empathy to this industry. Yeah, it's beautiful, man. It's really, really incredible. So from the lessons that you learned and obviously the empathy that you've developed, you know, how do you approach the transformation? How do you help people with this new deeper understanding that it is a lot more challenging and there is a lot more different things that play in different variables? How do you help someone practically get through yeah. these stages to actually you know, go into transformation? Yeah, it's helping them build self-awareness. The more self-aware we are, the more in control we can be of the, the choices we make in our life. Because if you're not even aware of this stuff, you got a long ways to go to eventually fix it. If you're not even aware of your triggers of like, oh, I got into a fight, and then you reach for the wine or the chocolate or the ice cream, if you're not even aware of what's happening, then you, you, like to overcome that like, or to find a magical diet or a magical pill that's just going to solve that for you isn't going to work. It, it's it's way more complex than that. So to become aware of what your triggers are and, and 
there's a lot of methods to do that. But uh, for, for right now, let's just stick with that as our answer. Self-awareness is the key because if you're like, oh, okay, when I'm stressed out with my spouse or, you know, if, I, if something uh, triggers me emotionally and then those emotions start to rise and then my brain looks for the food or the drugs or the alcohol, whatever it is, and you're using that substance to numb the pain of that, of that emotional, um, you know, challenge you're going through. As you become more aware of that, you can play it out in your brain and, and observe what's happening. And then when you observe it, you can more thoughtfully respond. Instead of just being so reactive, we've trained the brains to just react in those stressful situations, not even being aware of it. But as you become more self-aware, now you can kind of observe what's happening like a movie and be like, oh, do I really want to go down this path? Or no, do I want to more thoughtfully respond and be like, that's probably not the best thing for me. So the biggest thing in overcoming any kind of, you know, um, addiction or struggles with transformation is to become self-aware because as you become more self-aware, you're able to connect the dots and the pieces of what's happening. And then you're observing it instead of reacting to it. And as you observe it, you can more thoughtfully respond instead of just being so reactive. And, you know, to build that self-awareness, there's going to be different for each person, but that can include meditation, reading, working with a therapist, a life coach, um, breath work, plant medicine, um, all kinds of things to help us become the observer of our thoughts and build that self-awareness. But the first step is to learn how to become self-aware. Yeah, I love that. Let's talk more about self-awareness because I think sure. that is really the key with this experience of life, right? I, you know, and there's a lot of science about the psychology and the way the mind works. And like, you know, 95% of our lives are unconscious. Our unconscious is kind of controlling our habits, our triggers, all of these things. And those usually come from past experiences that get imprinted on our minds. And we're just not even aware of the way we're responding to things. And so self-awareness is to wake up, right? In the spiritual community, they talk about like, hey, wake up, wake up to becoming the observer, to improve your self-awareness, yes. act higher levels of awareness. So, you know, to become the observer, you thought you talked about different tools to, to become the observer. And I think it's the most powerful skill. It really is, you know, how to become the creator of your reality and not the victim of your unconscious or triggers or your patterns or your habits and really just observe them. And then you have the power to kind of start shifting them through different tools. Like what is, you know, self-awareness and what does it mean to be the observer? Like what is the separation between this thing that is observing and then the thoughts and habits that we're kind of acting out? Yeah, that's a little really good question. Spirituality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a really good question. I think, you know, you, you look back and, and as humans, as we progress or develop from a, a newborn baby, to you know, full-on adult, it is becoming self-aware. You know, as a baby, you don't know what this body is or what it does. Like as a baby, you're born and you're just learning. And then, as after a while, you become self-aware of like, oh, when I move my hand this way, if I it smacks my face, that kind of hurts. So maybe I'll just move it so it doesn't smack my face. And then from there, you grow and progress. Of like, how do these things that are hanging down from me work? Like these legs. Okay, if I push right here, you start to build that self-awareness naturally as a human, like as a little kid. And then you start to crawl, then you start to walk, then you start to run, then you can ride a bike, and then you can do all kinds of things. And each phase of our life kind of progresses us in that direction of, of actually becoming more self-aware. When we're not self-aware, it's just, you know, it's like you you don't know what you don't know. So we haven't just become, we, we haven't become self-aware enough yet if we haven't been able to figure something out. So let's say you're struggling with something in life. Like, first of all, just be patient with yourself. Like, you're not going to beat yourself beat yourself up as a little kid if you don't get 
learn how to walk the first time you get up and walk, right? <laughs> so it's very, it's very similar to when we're trying to overcome some kind of emotional hangup or something that's struggling, we're struggling with, whether it's relationship with our spouse, relationship with our parents, relationship with our kids, or relationship with all kinds of things. If we don't haven't figured it out yet, and we're like 20 years old, 30 years old, 40 years old, like that's okay. You just don't know what you don't know. So here's the key though. To become more self-aware, you have to be open to new things outside of your comfort zone that really helps shift your perception because that's where you start to become self-aware. And this is where if you get stuck in a plateau of like I did with my past religion of, okay, I've used all the tools available to me within this bubble of the religion I grew up in. And I'm, I'm not able to progress any further outside of that bubble because these tools only help me to a certain extent. When I left my religion, got out of that bubble, which is scary and is hard. It's like, okay, who am I without this thought, without this belief system? And I had to go through a self-discovery process of like figuring out who I am without being told how to think or feel or believe my whole life. And I had to, you know, unlearn all the programming that I had to learn before. And so for me, that looks like, you know, oh, meditation. I've heard of that. So a lot of people are talking about that. Never done it before. It sounds weird, but I'm going to try it. And I did it and it was magnificent. Positive affirmations. That sounds super corny and weird and ridiculous as a man to say certain words to yourself out loud. Like it sounds ridiculous, but I was open to it and it changed my perspective. Gratitude journaling. Um, you know, working with a therapist, I was taught that like, you know, Hey, we, you know, therapy is for crazy people, people with real problems. And, um, you know, I'm a man, I could, I could tough it out. Being open to something like that really helped, helped to shift my perception and, and help me become self-aware. So I think for anyone listening, that's like, how do I build self-awareness? The key is to try things that maybe you've never tried before, or you've never been open to trying before. Cause that's really where you can really expand your level of self-awareness um, especially if the tools you've been using just aren't working anymore right or just haven't you know you, don't, you feel stuck and so um for me um yeah self-awareness is one of those things that it's just it's always evolving it's like working out like you never arrived you're not like okay now i'm fit now i don't need to work out anymore it's like it's never one of those things where like okay i'm self-aware now i'm emotionally intelligent i can stop reading books i can stop meditating i can stop all that it's a ongoing process and ongoing journey that will never end. Yeah. The journey is infinite and that's why they call it meditation practice, yeah. yoga practice, journaling <laughs> practice. You have to show up and do it right. Or else you, yeah. I mean, our habits and the energy of the world is so, I mean, it's so intense that if we're not showing up and doing these practices regularly, we're going to constantly you know, fall back into these old patterns. And the stories are so fickle that they'll come up into your awareness without you even realizing it. And you'll be back in these old habits, old patterns, old, whatever it is. And then you'll wake up and be like, Oh shoot, I forgot. Like I need to show up and start doing this thing. And so developing those routines, those healthy routines, I would love to, to dive into just cause I, you know, I went to my own, you know, growing up in, in the Christian faith, I'd, I'd love to kind of dive deeper into, you know, the, the religion that you grew up in. And cause I think a lot of people, obviously, I think there's a lot of um, really beautiful things with religion and, and accessing these higher levels of awareness, but it, it is restrictive to a certain point. And I think, you get to that point. And I, for me personally, it actually kept me from connecting with my relationship with the, with the higher intelligence, whether you want to call it God, yeah. spirit, source, whatever it is. And so I had to break out of that. And it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do because those foundational stories, especially when you grow up at a young age, I mean, they're, they're so deep in there and it takes a lot of courage to work through those stories and be able to let them go because you're, you're dropping into an unknown. And, you know, for me in the Christian faith, 
you know, the, the, after reflecting a lot on this, I mean, that fear of death, right? Like eternal damnation or heaven. And you have to believe this one thing and to let go of that belief is to let go of, of really your, your, your certainty of what happens when you die. And I always had questions. And so letting go of that was really challenging. So I'd love to kind of hear your process of why you left the church and the challenges that you faced and then the beauty that, you know, resulted from that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I grew up in the Mormon faith, which is also known as like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, very strict religion. If anyone knows it, um, it it's Christian-based, right? They believe in the Bible. They believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in all that. So it's Christian-based religion, but it's it's pretty strict, right? Um, so I grew up in that. And a lot of good came from it, for sure. I think religion provides structure for people where from a very young age, you feel safe with, hey, this is why you're here. Uh, this is where you're going after your life if you do X, Y, and Z. And if you don't do those things, then you're going to go here. And it's like, it provides that certainty that you were talking about. And that makes us feel safe. It makes our egos feel like, oh, we know exactly what's going to happen. And it makes us feel good to know everything. Like, I don't need to fear the unknown. Because to not have answers to like, why do we exist? Or what's the point of this life? Or why do we have to do all this stuff? And, and um, you know, um, it provides a certain form of structure. And I'm going to make a comparison and hopefully not, it's not offensive, but it's almost similar with what we do with like Santa Claus and Christmas. It makes a kid feel safe because it provides a structure of like, Oh, if you're good, you're going to get all these awesome things and, and all these fun things will happen from, from being good. But if you're bad, you know, here's there's like, you're not going to get these, you have to be good to, uh, to earn these things. And it's magical. Like this, this, you know, this person comes on this one night of the year and based off how good or bad you are, you get presents or you get punishments or pull, whatever you want, you know, whatever it is for you. Um, but it's very similar. And, and it, kids like love it. It's magical. Right. And I actually think it's a good tradition. I still, you know, you know my girls are old enough now to where they know about Santa, but we did that and it was good for them. But I feel like it, you, know, you can't go grow up your whole life <laughs> believing in that. Right. Because you grew up and you're like, wait, this is I'm starting to use logic. It's not making sense how this story you told me of this guy comes down the chimney. Like, what if there's no chimney? And what it like, how is someone supposed to fit through there? And there's a billion, billions of people on this earth. How is that supposed to happen? Right. So we kind of break out of that. I'm not saying religion is the same thing, but what I'm saying is it provides all humans with a sense of security, safety, structure. And it feels good to our ego to have that certainty 100%. Yeah. And without that, similar- it's. Those similar questions come up, right? Like, you know, for me, it's like, okay, you're going to hell if you don't believe this one thing. But then the whole population of India that has never been exposed to Christianity, they're just going to hell. What kind of God would create that? And so those simple questions start popping up into a child's mind. And I think the biggest enemy to religion and organized religion is the question why. And so they kind of yeah. they, they create this idea of blind faith, like, oh, that's just the way it is. Trust, trust, trust. And I, I never really understood faith. And, you know, for me, faith is it's, it's earned through experience and through knowing that everything's going to work out. It's not just like kind of giving away and absolving yourself of responsibility of showing up. And, you know, talking about earlier in the podcast, you, you say, you know, the self-awareness and you're talking about that, you know, as, as we're children and we're growing up, we have this like pureness and this innocence. And I think it's when that inner judge starts coming online, right? The world starts kind of programming us. You talked about, you know, the story of Santa Claus, like if you're good, then you'll get this. And so that even that, even that story creates this inner judge within the child. Like, okay, if I'm not good and then what is good, who decides what is good. And so the inner judge starts taking shape. And I think that's what we're trying to all work through, right? That's the, the programming and the inner judge is really, I mean, I've been reflecting a lot on this the last six months is 
what is, what is the real problem? What is like the, the seed and the source of like all of this pain and suffering? And I think it is this judgment, the judgment of self, which in turn creates judgment of others. Cause you can only judge another to the extent that you judge yourself. And it, I think this healing journey that we're all on and this transformation, it really comes down to self-love and how can we embody and love ourselves fully. And like you talked about, I'm sure you've, you know, viscerally experienced this, but with what you went through with the fit to fat to fit is understanding that we are not our bodies. And if I don't love my body, it's going to be harder for me to show up and take care of my body because I'm going to treat it as something separate than myself. And so this healing journey that we're all on, you know, even organized religion, I mean, for me in, in the Christian faith that I grew up in, it was that inner judge. It was, you know, the God that I was taught was, was this, this vengeful, wrathful, judgmental God that if you didn't show up and try to be perfect, then you're falling short and you're sinning. But then the story of like, everybody's a sinner and you actually can't reach that. And it creates this natural shame. And I think shame is the biggest issue that we all deal with. And shame, all shame is, is a judgment of self. And then if you're judging yourself, you're going to judge the world. And, you know, I love that the mystical teaching of as within, so without, and it's really that inner journey of, of learning to love yourself fully. And then your, your world and your experience outwardly becomes that experience of love. Yeah. I think it's really hard, especially for a kid growing up in a, you know, kind of strict religion where, you know, my perception of growing or playing with the sports that I did and growing up in the religion that I did was this perception of like, if I beat myself up and discipline myself, but you know, if you do a sports, if I just like tough it out and like, then I can be more disciplined then I won't make mistakes if I just be super hard on myself. And so I grew up with a lot of self-hate uh, because of that, because I was taught like, okay, here's the list of things I need to do in order to be considered good, right? And if I don't do those things, then I'm a failure. And I didn't know how to separate that, like from making mistakes and doing things that are wrong to, you know, uh, you know, considering myself a failure. And that's just kind of the mentality I grew up with. That was my perception because as a young kid, you don't know any better. And people are telling you, yeah, that's like, you, if you're doing these things, you're, that's a sin. And here's the punishment for your sins. <laughs> and so my mentality was like, okay, I have sins, I have weaknesses, but I don't want people to know about them. Because if I do, then there's a punishment. And in the church I grew up in, the punishment sometimes, if like you masturbated or looked at pornography, was that you had to, um, you couldn't partake of the sacrament. And in the church I grew up in, they would pass the bread and water around and pass it to each person. And when, if you're worthy, you can take it. And if you're not worthy, you can't take it. You're not supposed to. It's a sin to take it when you're unworthy, right? And But as a kid, you feel this immense amount of pressure as it's coming around. Your parents right there, the leaders are watching. You feel like everyone's watching. And so it comes around and if you don't take it, People, you could be like, as a kid, you're so fearful what other people think. So you're oh, like, yeah. okay, so and so is going to be like, oh my gosh, you see Drew, he didn't take it. I wonder if he's looking at cars, like, you know, whatever the sin is. <laughs> and and then you're so fearful that you're like, I'm just going to take it anyways, right? And then you're like, ah, oh, I'm so guilty. I feel so ashamed. Like, why did I do that? And, um, you know, just, and also just being normal, like a normal kid with, with hormones. Like, you know, obviously, like the church I grew up in taught, taught me that, like, pornography is bad, masturbation is bad. And so anytime I did that, I felt so disgusted with myself. So I hated myself. I'm like, all right, how do I break through this? Just discipline myself more, beat myself up even more. That's how you know, my coaches do it. And then they get me to perform. So I'm going to do that to myself. And that's what will get me to not make any more mistakes. But of course, it doesn't work. And that eventually broke me. Hiding things from people that I love, um, you know, pretending like things were okay, even though they weren't. And, you know, as a man, we're taught vulnerability is a weakness. Don't talk about your emotions. Don't talk about your feelings. Suppress those, you know, and, and be a man. 
And so you're in this internal conflict throughout your whole teenage years, 20 years, and you just kind of slowly develop so much shame around who you are. For me, it just caused this life of like being inauthentic and lying and deceitful because I was so afraid of what other people thought about me. And I just, to avoid that punishment, it's like a self-defense mechanism of like, hey, just pretend it doesn't exist and we'll get through this life and, you know, die with a lot of like dark secrets that I just can never tell anyone. And then hurt people hurt people. And when you're hurt like that, you hurt other people, um, you know, uh, unknowingly. Like you just don't know that that's what's happening, but it, it's true. Like you, if you don't love yourself, it's really, really hard to love other people. And I believe that to be true. And so for me to learn how to develop self-love, I had to go through a lot of self-hate and then eventually hitting rock bottom and then leaving my religion was one of the best things I could have ever done for me because that's where I first started to learn how to love myself outside of religion. And then just realized that all those things that I was so worried about, like, oh, if you drink coffee, you're a sinner. If you drink alcohol, you're a sinner. And it's like, what if God loves me no matter what, no matter what men of who are leaders of certain religions say is what God wants. Maybe God doesn't care about any of that stuff. Maybe God could care less if you wear a white shirt and tie, or if you have a beard, or if you don't have a beard, or if you drink coffee or tea. Like maybe that's made up by men to kind of control the masses to say, Hey, this is what we think God wants. If you do it this way, you'll be happier. And you give us 10% of your income and, and then you'll go to heaven. <laughs> you know, so it's interesting being on one extreme where for the first 34 years of my life, I believed a certain way and I was 100% in. And now the past six years, I've been out of it. And I'm like, man, looking in now, I'm like, what? That's so ridiculous to think that way. But that's the way I used to think. So I can empathize with people that stay in that, right? Uh, I can empathize with people that stay in there because I used to be in that. So I'm not sure if this is answering your question, but it's kind of my journey of like, you know, getting out of the religion, getting out of the guilt shame cycle, you know, and it really, really helps me. I really appreciate you sharing that, man, because I think that's a, a very, you know, a vulnerable thing to share, but I think it's a very relatable thing because I think, you know, you said hurt people hurt people. And I think we all have yeah. our own hurts and pains and we keep them so, you know, that's what shame does. It keeps it internal and we don't have uh, the ability to express. We don't feel safe enough in a container. I mean, religion and, and church should be a place for us to process, but it's almost like we hold it in, God will take it and it, it never actually gets released. And so first of all, I'm really proud of you for the journey that you've been on and for your vulnerability and you're sharing that story because I think it's going to be relatable to, to a lot of men, especially because I have definitely the same, you know, internal journey. I think all of us have had this deep program, especially growing up in religion that, you know, creates this, this fear and this shame and, and all of that that goes along with it. And I'm really surprised it was only six years ago, man. That's a, uh, that's a wild journey. Yeah. I'd love to, yeah, to, to understand a little bit more because um, especially with the Mormon church from what I know is it's really uh, a tight knit kind of tribe mentality, especially with family and stuff. And for you to, um, you know, leave the church, like how did, how did your family feel about that? How did it affect the relationships and all of that? Because it's not just a personal thing, right? Like when you're leaving a religion, especially like Mormonism, it's, it's a bigger thing. Like you're confronting not only your own like internal battles of wanting to like find, you know, your own truth, but then everybody else putting that pressure onto you. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. It, it, it kind of was a very, very lonely experience for me because you know, like my whole family was in it. My whole family was in it and a lot of my friends were in it and to leave that is very hard. And that's why I don't blame people for not leaving is because the power of community is really, really strong. And if you're like, okay, if I leave, 
I'm going to lose so much. I might lose my relationship with my parents. I might lose my relationship with my siblings. I might lose my relationship with my friends. And then it's really, really hard and scary to go out into this like lonely world without all those people that you've been so close with. For me, it was really interesting where I felt alone. Um, my family was really, really good to me during this transition. It's not like they disowned me. I could tell they were hurt by my decision to, to leave. Um, but for me, I knew it was the right thing for me. And that's one thing you have to realize in life, you guys. We do so many things for other people our whole life, right? We're kind of like domesticated animals. We're told how to behave since we're like young kids. Like, hey, stop doing that. Do this. Don't do that. Like, act this way. Don't act that way. And so you're kind of like at, at, at war with yourself from like probably four or five years old on. Like, of like, hey, society is telling me to do this. But uh, we do so many things for other people our whole life. And we, you never really truly figure out who you really are unless you... Uh, you know, develop that relationship with yourself and discover who you really are without being told who to be, right? A lot of people think they know who they are, but the only reason they do that is because they've been told how who they are by society and religion and culture and teachers and coaches and movies and TV shows. We're kind of molded into told who to become. But take away all that. It's like, who are you without that? Guy? Do you know who you are without that? Um, and so for me, it really was kind of scary to to leave that community because yeah, you do feel judged, um, and I, you know, it, it definitely caused a disconnect between my family and I because I think it was hard for them to accept the truth that I wasn't part of the religion anymore. Um, but that's that's I can't control that. I can't control their perception of 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 what they view me as. And there was a time where I did want to show people that I was happy outside of the church. I wanted to like prove to people that, no, I'm happier now. And there's this sense of like wanting to show that to people. I went through that phase. Uh, definitely let it go eventually. Uh, worked with a great therapist and life coach that really helped me to do that. Um, and it's so freeing once you start living your life, your life for yourself and just being the authentic version of yourself is so freeing. It's scary. Like Brene Brown talks about them, like being the man in the arena is so, so scary. Because, yeah, now you're out there in the middle where everyone from the stands is watching you and pointing fingers and yelling and booing and whatever. You can't control what they do. All you can do is be that person in the arena and show up your authentic self. And once you get past the, the fear and letting go of what other people think, it's the most freeing thing. I think every human at some point should experience that because it is so freeing. And it's like a breath of fresh air of like, oh, this is who I this is who I really am. This mm. is who I am. And I don't care anymore. And I just, you know, this is me. And that's, that's a beautiful thing to experience. And I'm grateful that I was able to experience that. Absolutely, man. It takes a deep, profound courage to show up and, and go on that yeah. journey. You know, and I'm really grateful because a, a similar experience with, you know, being forced to ask myself the question, who am I, right? I'm playing football for 16 years of my life. And when I finally walked away, everything I had ever known, I went through a big breakup at the same time. My identity, not only my identity was wrapped up in football, but all of my family and friends saw me as a football player. And so I didn't really know how to relate to the world. And I was forced to ask these existential questions like, who am I without this thing that has defined me for so long? And that's what led me on this journey of really self-discovery. And it's really beautiful when you go on that journey of transformation and wanting to understand who you are, stripping away all the stories and the belief structure, the ideologies, the everything that you've kind of built your identity on. When you start stripping that stuff away you really can come to a place of a knowing of who you are, what you are, what you're capable of. And to be in that knowing, you no longer have to prove yourself to anybody. There's, there's no story to yeah. try and hang on to because you know who you are. And when you can embody that energy and show up, 
that's really what heals others because you know, there's no words or anything. You're trying to shift other people's perspectives. You're really just showing up and knowing who you are. And that's just contagious to people. They're, they're just drawn to you and you yeah. can embody the energy because they want to know how they can become. Cause you know, even if someone's showing up and putting a mask on their internal dialogue yeah. is eating away at them. And if it's not doing yeah. that to you, cause you've done that work, it's really just healing to anybody that you're around. Yeah. And it's really interesting to see people that have followed me from the beginning of fit to fat fit, which is, you know, 2011, I'm still Mormon. I'm still married, different, you know, wore a lot of masks back then for sure. And I've been very open and vocal about all those masks that I wore, like all the stuff that I was hiding. And, uh, you know, it, it was able to tell people about my story from a place of healing. And then to see me transition going from this married, you know, Mormon guy to then leaving the church and now I'm divorced. I'm the single father. And it's like, who am I without all that? People have seen the ups and downs, like, you know, this new identity. And um, it's so interesting how it's affected my business. And just to be totally honest with you, sure, there's been ups and downs with my business since then. But it's so more aligned with who I am and how I show up in my business now versus before, because I feel like people can gravitate towards authenticity and they can tell someone's being authentic or someone's being fake. And there's something about vulnerability, breeding vulnerability um, and making people feel more safe to be vulnerable. And that relatability factor as someone who's like the face of the brand, building that trust with them is so much easier to do when I can be authentic and I'm not having to hide anything from my audience or wear a mask for them to pretend like, Oh, this is who I am. Hopefully you like me this way. It's like, um, you know, it, it's, it's really opened up my eyes to, you know, all kinds of businesses and companies and influencers and how we run our businesses. There's something to say about being authentic and vulnerable with your audience and building that relationship of trust, which then builds your tribe so much more than if you, pretend to be someone that you're not. Does that make sense? And so yeah. it's been really Hard interesting. Hard to community to, when there's not truth, right? Because it, it, people yeah. start to recognize that pretty quickly. The bullshit yep. radar goes off. <laughs> exactly. I love it. As we're coming to a close here, I want to ask a couple more questions. But if anybody that's sure, watching man. live, um, if you guys want to put some questions in the chat or if you have any comments or are curious about diving deeper into any of you know Drew's story or any questions for me, go ahead and drop it in the chat. Um, I want to know something that you know I deal with um, you know, coming from the church and, and doing my own healing journey and growing, and I've, I'm really kind of proud of myself and where I've gotten. And like you, as soon as I started doing this healing journey, like all the people that I love so much, like I want to tell them like what I'm figuring out and like, let go, like there's, there's more out there, like kind of, you know, wake up. And I think a lot of people go through that when they start transforming or evolving past another you know, current environment or going on a spiritual path. And I think it's natural to like want to help the people that you love because you can see them in their suffering and their pain. And, you know, I've done a good job of really trying to embody the energy like we talked about. But, you know, with my parents still, they're, they're very much still in that dogmatic belief system of Christianity. I'm sure you experience with, with your family still in the church. How do you navigate those conversations when you, when you love someone so much and, you know, really try to share like who you are where you're at and maybe trying to, you know, widen their perspective a little bit. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's been an interesting journey to, to you know, get to a place of where I am today. And it really, it, it comes down to setting your boundaries and sticking to those boundaries and being very vocal because a lot of times in the past, I've had to bite my tongue um, with uh, the way things were going conversational wise. Like for example, um, you know, my family's still in it and I still respect them for being in it, but, 
know, for, for some of them, it's all they've ever known. And so for them, that's like all they talk about and that's all they want to talk about with me. And for me, I don't want to have this relationship where it's always one sided where they're promoting their belief system and trying to convert me to their way of thinking. And then if I say something against that, then it's offensive to them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, we don't want to, we only want to hear positive stuff. We don't want to hear any negative stuff. It's like, well, I need to be able to speak my truth. If you're able to speak your truth, like there needs to be that balance of like, this is how I believe and think. I'm not trying to persuade you to, to, you know, join my team or, or, um, persuade you to, you know, leave the church. That's not what I'm trying to say, but there's something for seeing for being said about wanting to feel understood, especially to those that you love the most. Like you, you want to be understood by your family. You don't want them to judge you and think poorly of you. Like when you're not around, like I would rather have a relationship with them where it's like, Hey, this is who I am, you know, and hopefully you guys can accept who I am, but if you can't, that's okay. But that's on you. Like, I can't control that. I love who I am. I'm proud of who I am and grateful for who I am today. And if you don't see it that way, like, that's okay. We can agree to disagree, but I, I've had to set boundaries of like, okay, when we're together, I prefer us not talk about religion because it's just, you're going to ask for my opinions and I'm going to tell you my opinions and you're not going to like them. You know what I'm saying? So instead we could just, you know, kind of like avoiding politics, you know, at Thanksgiving, very similar situation, setting those boundaries, being very clear with them, and um, and making sure that they understand that so that then you can have a, a, a real relationship outside of religion. And that's kind of where I think it's on certain people to learn how to do that. But it might be hard for people to learn how to do that. Uh, but for me, I think it's really important to, you know, setting boundaries that make you feel safe and vice versa. And it's important for other people, you know, in the in your circle to set boundaries too and respecting those boundaries. Um, and so I think it goes both ways. Just And that's where I think empathy can be a game changer in this. Of Hey, I can empathize with where you're coming from. Can you empathize with me where I'm coming from? And that's where it needs to be, you know, um, on both sides. Yeah. yeah, I love the boundaries. And I found too, like when I start setting my own boundaries, it actually gives permission to, to, to my parents or whoever I'm talking to, to have their own boundaries. And it's been really fascinating that like, if we do get in a conversation, it starts getting kind of heated. You know, my dad specifically will be like, oh, like, I don't really want to talk about this anymore. Like, can we come back to like a place of like love and understanding? And we've we had this because we've worked through so much where we can feel that when the energy gets heightened that we both like understand this is going to a place where we both don't want it to go. Let's come back. Let's kind of move the energy and really come back to a place of love, which is really beautiful. And that comes from a place of, of boundaries. But I do find it fascinating that you know, they, like you said, they, they want to kind of talk about religion and they have questions and are curious about what I believe and I share it and they immediately get into a, a defensive mindset. Like they have to defend their beliefs. And I'm like, I'm not trying to yeah. change your beliefs, but you're in this defensive mode trying to defend your own beliefs. And I think that, that fact there alone should tell them something, right? It's like having to defend what they believe. Yeah. Cause, and that's the thing we talked about. Like when you're in your knowing, like there's nothing I have to defend. Like, and honestly, yeah. the more work you do on this path and realize, I mean, that's why I have this podcast. Like, discussing the unanswerable questions. Like we, like nobody actually knows, right? Like, why are we here? What do you believe? It's like, this is what resonates with me. This is kind of what I've come to understand. And it's really about having that open perspective and people get so attached to wanting certainty. And I think that's where the, the conflict and the defensiveness gets, because if you're right with what you believe, even though it's not really challenging, it's challenging my own personal belief, but you're not personally challenging me. It's like the internal challenge of uh, maybe I'm not so certain. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it's, it's one of those things where as you, as you, you know, show up in these relationships, it's, 
you know, it's one of those things you just have to learn and kind of go with the, with, with how it's going. And maybe there's times of the year where it's more intense and other times where it's like, Oh, we found our sweet spot. It just be patient with it. And here's the thing I've learned too, that helps me put things into perspective is I've had powerful experiences that have led me down this path to believe what I believe today. And those, those experiences are like powerful to me and important to me, just like for other people, the way they believe have probably been, they've had some experiences that have, confirm their beliefs in such a way where they feel like this is their truth, right? Like this is my truth. And uh, it's important for me to remember that because it's so easy to look down upon or judge people that don't have your same beliefs, but everyone of, of every belief system kind of does that in a sense where it's like, Oh, this, this way is the best way. This way is the way to think. This is how we should all be. And what I've learned is that there's no one way that works for all of us. And, and each single individual is on their own path to discover their truth and their experiences have shaped their beliefs in a certain way that they're just doing the best they can with what they have in that moment. And, and who knows, they might have an experience one day that will change their perception and could lead them down a different path, but we can't control that. I think sometimes we try and control that with words and convincing, being persuasive and sharing our experiences as if doing that will convert someone. And sometimes it can certain people, but I think too many times, and I did this as a Mormon missionary where it's like, no, this way is the truth. You need, you're miserable in your life. You need to come over here and, and be happy in, in this belief system. And um, I don't know. I try and I try not to do that when, when someone maybe disagrees with me or someone like challenges my beliefs. It's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like nothing you could say could really change the way I, I, I believe things now, but I think now I'm a lot more open-minded than I've ever been back in the day. <laughs> if you're so set and so structured in your way of thinking that nothing can persuade you and you're, you're pretty prideful about that. Like there's nothing that could would ever change my mind about, about this belief system. Then I feel like that's where it could be dangerous because then you're, you're kind of, you're not open to truths that might happen at some point in time that will change your perspective because i feel like that's how life is you're not meant to just be in one like bubble one set of thinking your entire life because you grow you evolve you change as a human and you know yeah you believed in santa for hardcore for a few years in the beginning of your life <laughs> you know like a lot of us did but then now that you're out of it you're like okay i'm open to learning new things and believing in new things and maybe every 10 years we kind of become this new version of ourselves that kind of you know shifts the way we think of, and we don't need to be so set in our ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. It, it comes back to self-awareness. Right. And I think, yeah, you know, yeah. on my journey and my path, the wisest people that I know uh, understand that they don't really know anything and, and to not know is wisdom because for you to think you actually know this infinite experience of life uh, in your own unique perspective is, is just kind of really just ignorant to be honest with you. I mean, it's just look out into the cosmos I and mean, we're constantly discovering through all these different, modalities, new and new, you know, technologies and, and ways of being and different information. And it's constantly new information is coming in. So really open mind is the biggest tool that you can have in navigating this reality and, and not, you know, that inner skeptic, honoring that inner skeptic, questioning things, not even taking things yeah. that you're like, that seems pretty spot on, but having that little inner skeptic and giving him a little bit of food, be like, Hey, okay, well, well what else could there be? And I think that's a really important skill that's getting lost in our society and our culture. I'm going to ask you a final question. And this is kind of what I usually start the podcast with, but we've had a really good discussion. I really appreciate <laughs> your wisdom and your vulnerability, but you know, and it's kind of like summing up, like we just talked about it, like we don't really know, but in your perspective, 
and your subjective experience, what is the purpose of life? Like, why are we here? Why was this experience created? It's something that, you know, just continues to create this exploration of, of why, you know, so, so what, and from your perspective, what, what are we here for? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So I used to come from this thinking, like I said, of like 100% knowing exactly why we're here and where we were going and the purpose of life. And now that I, now that I can honestly say, I don't know that is very freeing, but here's my perception of on what I think it could mean based off the experiences I've had thus far in my life, uh, 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 but also being open to being wrong <laughs> because I could be 100% wrong and I'm okay with that. If I'm wrong, like I live all, I can honestly say I live the best life, you know, the fullest life possible, even if I'm 100% wrong. But the way I, I look at like the purpose of this life is, is kind of like this, like we're here on this earth and I feel like the, the purpose of this life is to progress and grow and then pass on what we learn and um, evolve into and we pass it on to the next generation so that the next generation can prosper. And I feel like that's what this life is about is just learning and progressing and, and moving forward. And that's all that there really is in this life. Because I feel like if you stay stuck, it's very depressing to not progress. And I think every human that is stuck that has no progression in this life is kind of miserable, right? To be stuck and not having any kind of further progress. Like you look at people who lose their sense of purpose, right? Like not having a purpose in this life can be really hard for people to navigate this world because if you don't have a purpose, it's hard to show up every day passionately living life to the fullest um, and not knowing like what your purpose is. And so I think part of that is, okay, what, um, what is my purpose? And maybe that purpose changes over time and evolves into something different, but discovering what your purpose is and moving forward in life, no matter what, and then passing that on to, you know, whether it's kids, grandkids, you know, friends, family, loved ones, whoever it is, passing on that knowledge that you've learned. And so that the next generation just becomes, you know, two steps ahead of where we were. And then thousands of years of that, who knows what we can become as, as oh, a man. species, as a society. <laughs> thousand you know? years. I mean, what's going to happen in five years? <laughs> yeah, I know so no much has this been expedited, uh, right? It's been mm -hmm. fast forward to so much like in the past hundred years versus the first you know, thousand years AD. It's so interesting. Like, you know, how we're evolving even quicker now. So it's, no. I don't know. No. Uh, that's, and that's like my opinion and perspective no. on what the purpose of this life is for humans. Um, but like I said, I really don't know. Yeah, totally. I love it. I mean, and when you wind your perspective of that, like when I, I just had my first kid four months ago and, and that experience really connected me deeper to like the, 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 how we are all so much more connected. Like we are, we have all been in a womb before and, the, our parents before that were in wombs. So it's like this constant unfolding of us actually all connected to that experience. And when you live isolated, separated in your own kind of egoic separated world, that it's, it's hard to understand and have compassion for the experience. But when you can widen that perspective out, you can really have that compassion, understanding that we are all in this together as a, as a race and a humanity and, and really showing up to grow and evolve in that way. It's really beautiful. Um, so we got a couple questions from the audience, which is really cool. So, sure. For your most recent challenge, fit to fat to 40, was it, more was it more difficult physically or mentally in comparison to your first challenge? Do you feel more confident because of the work that you've done and the tools that you've acquired over the time to tackle this challenge? I'm sure over the last 10 years, you've definitely evolved. So how was that challenge different? I know we talked a little bit about it early in the show. 
Yeah, it was a lot harder mentally and emotionally this the second time around because I feel like uh, being being more self aware, your highs are a lot higher, but your lows are a lot lower too. And I felt like so I went through a really bad breakup during my fit to fat to forty experiment with my girlfriend, and that was really really hard for me because here I was physically unhealthy, but going through a breakup now I was mentally and emotionally and spiritually kind of broken. And that was probably the lowest point in my life. I was very, very depressed. That that breakup with my girlfriend was harder than my divorce with my wife of 10 years. Because uh, I was in the public eye. I was in the middle of my journey. And so I would say I, it was a lot harder mentally and emotionally because of that. But it, I definitely learned the power of emotional eating um, during that experience because I was sad, lonely, and depressed. And there's something to say about Ben and Jerry's ice cream when you're sad, lonely, and depressed that temporarily gives you a dopamine hit that makes you feel better for a short, short period of time, very short period of time. But there's something to be said for that. I don't condone that behavior, but I understand it on a deeper level now why people do that. As humans, we look for distractions to numb the pain of the emotional pain of life. Like we just do, right? That's, we, it's hard to do the work. It's hard to meditate. It's hard to journal. It's hard to go to therapy. It's hard to do all that self-reflection, personal development work it's so much easier just to take a pill, drink a drink, eat some delicious food. That's like, ah, I'll put this off till later. Right. And you do that multiple times per day with pop tarts, cinnamon toast crunch and soda and ice cream and donuts and all kinds of things that temporarily numb the pain. So this time around, it was a lot harder, uh, say emotionally, physically, it was definitely hard, you know, to gain weight and to be overweight, to feel physically unhealthy, and then to lose the weight and have to exercise and eat healthy and be disciplined is exhausting. And that's really, really hard. Um, but I would say it's nothing compared to the emotional and mental uh, pain of it all. So uh, I think the answer to their question, or was there two questions? There two no, questions? no, that's, there's another question, but it's, uh, I, I have a couple <laughs> questions follow up for that. What was your favorite type of Ben and Jerry's ice cream? Okay, so uh, hopefully this doesn't cause people to go out and buy it because it's really good. It's their dairy-free. It's it's amazing. Uh, Netflix and chilled flavor. It's got um, chunks of peanut butter in it, uh, fudge brownie, uh, pieces of salted pretzel uh, broken up into it. So you get the salty with the sweet and then uh, caramel. And it's so good. And it's dairy free. Um, oh, but anyways, so that was my I jam. love that. I love that you did this experiment and you actually like enjoyed the experience of eating all the junk food. Because <laughs> I, I feel like somebody that could do this is like, I'm going to do this to kind of prove that, and they're not really like struggle with that. But you like obviously really enjoy this type of food. Is there anything that you you miss that you ate a lot of that you kind of don't really eat anymore because you know it's bad for you, or maybe you splurge every now and then? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sugary cereal is like so convenient. Like I could have that you know, as like a snack, a meal for every meal of the day. It's so convenient and it's just so good. So Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Peanut Butter Captain Crunch, those are my, probably my two favorites that I had. But like Pop-Tarts and like breakfast sandwiches and bagels with cream cheese. Like there's all these foods that, you know, we probably ate as kids that have this sentimental value that it's hard to be like, okay, I'm never having that again. Now here's the thing, I don't buy cereal anymore. I don't, I just can't have it in the house. But if like it shows up magically in my cupboard one day, I might have to eat the whole thing just to get it out of here so I don't <laughs> mess with it again. <laughs> and so there's certain things that I won't buy because it's, I know it's unhealthy and I know it's like a trigger food for me. 
But I'm sure that's a yeah. powerful I mean, lesson I do, I, to your clients too. Is yes. like you know, clean up your your cupboard, clean up your environment, like get it out of the house because a lot of times our willpower it's hard for us to control it. Like even me, really disciplined. If there's something I really enjoy in the house and I'm hungry, and it's like those kind of the, the discipline kind of washes away when you're when your stomach's like growling and you're just like, oh, I would love that, and you just eat it. So clean it up, right? Yeah, that's one of the first things I tell people is to get out of the, the trigger foods that you know are triggering for you and get them out of the house. And if your kids hate you for it and your kids are mad at you for like, hey, where's my food? Where's this? It's like, hey, you're not going to die, you know, not having this food. And I need to please take this seriously. So for me, I'm asking you to do this for me. Please help me be strict with this and help me, you know, work on this. I need your help. And hopefully, you know, I mean, kids they really don't care about that but adults do and if you need to take it seriously you might need that kind of like intervention where it's like i just can't have this in the house yeah and make it a team effort right like if you share that vulnerably with your close people it's not only going to inspire them to maybe show up and better themselves but really it is going to help you keep yourself accountable which is a really powerful lesson um final question i don't know if this is a comment or you can kind of discuss it's a little bit more of the esoteric stuff um but alex sertino asked, how do we not fear death? I'm scared of my actual existence. Do you have anything to share around that? Good question. I think it's human nature to fear the unknown and to fear a change where we really don't know what happens after we die. I know some people think they do, but it's so dark and scary just to think about. Um, It's really, really hard to get to that point. You know, even with all the meditation and, you know, plant medicines that I've used and spiritual journeys that I've gone on, I still have this fear of death. You know, for me, it's, it's the fear of the pain that I know it's going to cause other people, like my girls without their dad, like that would be very, very painful. For me. Um, so to get into a place of not being able to fear death, I think that's letting go of your ego. And that's why I think plant medicine is a powerful tool in helping people dissolve your ego. So you don't fear death as much. And it helps you to live life to the fullest. Cause if you live this life fearing death, you're not truly living in my opinion. And so it takes practice, takes time. Um, You know, for me, things that have helped me are like meditation, therapy, life coaching, reading books, podcasts, uh, journaling, gratitude lists, plant medicines have really helped open up my eyes to seeing death through a new lens where maybe I don't fear it in the way I used to before. Um, But that doesn't mean I don't want to live a long time. I'm definitely trying to live my longest as well. So I don't just go on too stupid things. (laughs) No doubt. Yeah, thanks for saying. I I totally agree. Like, you know, the thing with, with the plant medicines and the ego dissolution, it's like, I've had those experiences as well. And what it's developed in me is I don't, I don't really know what happens when I die, but I know there is something at some aspect of me that does go on and transcend this experience. Like I know that for a fact, what that looks like, what that feels like, I can't tell you, but I think that knowing is really, really something special. And it's really had a powerful impact on my life and how, you know, confronting your own death and actually going through those experiences is a a beautiful thing because it actually allows you to live more fully, right? To know that the only absolute truth in this world is impermanence. It's a finite experience, at least in this existence, in this day and age. And so what are you going to do to make the most of it? And, you know, one book that had a really profound impact in my life that I read recently, um, and I keep referring back to is by Barry Long, and it's called Only Fear Dies. And it's really beautiful when you start to really understand that. Like fear is the thing that is getting in the way of everything. And fear is the illusion. And that's why I truly believe like getting outside your comfort zone. And, and, and the, I love the quote on the other side of fear lies freedom. If you can go towards the things that scare you, 
work through them, work through the resistance, realize they're just an illusion, heal the parts of you that maybe there's an experience that created that fear within you. And you can learn to heal those as your fear dies, you can really access higher levels of freedom and you can approach life, um, you know, with that more free energy and go towards the things that scare you and know that that's a part of the journey. Yeah, I think doing things that scare you is really, really important. Doing hard things um, really helps you to break out of that that fear of doing of the unknown, right? Like, for example, last year I ran 100 miles in 24 hours, and I've never done a marathon in my life. Now, oh, you're crazy, yeah, bro! Just yeah, it is crazy. But what I'm trying to do is like, hey, I picked a goal that's pretty extreme for 99 percent of people, um, and I've never done that before. I suck at running. I hate it but I'm going to do it because it scares me and I'm not sure if I could actually do it. And so I was able to accomplish it. Um, I'm not going to do it again though. I, I hated it, but what I'm saying is like, it could be little things like that. It could be like taking a cold shower. That sucks. People fear that it's hard. It's like getting out of your comfort zone. But if you could train your brain to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations, that's the key to transformation. Because any kind of transformation, spiritual or physical or financial transformation, has to do with learning how to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations and realizing that you're going to be okay, that it's going to be okay. In these uncomfortable situations, you can still learn to you know, be present and be comfortable. And if you could do that with a small thing like taking a cold shower, maybe that can transfer over into like, Hey, I want to eat less food. I want to be more disciplined. I want to uh, go to the gym and work out. Like those things are really uncomfortable, but you know, instead of just jumping in be like, all right, this year, I'm not going to eat sugar. I'm not, I'm going to work out every day this year. I'm going to work out twice a day. It's like, okay, is that realistic for, for some of us? Maybe some of us can pull it off, but most of us, we probably can't, but it, it carries over into other areas of our life. So start small, do little things that scare you that are hard, that are uncomfortable learn to become comfortable in those uncomfortable situations and then carry that over into other areas of your life and just try. And if you fail, cool. You're like, okay, I did it. It scared me. I didn't do it all the way, but it's more than I would have done, you know, like 10 years ago. Yeah, so. That's beautiful. That's the key. I think is, is don't be so hard on yourself. It's that inner judge that you talked about. If you, if you set those yeah. small goals that, that you can accomplish, start knocking them off. And if you fall short, don't be hard on yourself. Just get back on. And I think it's mm -hmm. the, the judgment yeah. that kind of leads you down that downward spiral of getting back into those old habits. So, Really appreciate you taking the time, um, dropping some wisdom. I'm yeah. really proud of you. Thanks for sharing so openly, vulnerably about your own journey with you know your transformation, going and really empathizing with people on a, on a visceral level, and then sharing it you know publicly. I, I, I really you know it's had a powerful impact on me. I hope the people that are listening live got something out of this, and those of you listening at home, uh, really appreciate it. Where can people find you? Uh, reach out to you, connect with you, to share with you uh, what they thought of the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's so simple. At fit number two, fat number two, fit. So fit to fat to fit is the handle on all social media handles. And it's my website, my podcast, my book. So fit to fat to fit. Beautiful. Definitely check that out. Reach out to them and, uh, and let them know what you thought of the podcast. Thank you so much for everybody that joined live and registered. Uh, this is our first one. We're definitely going to be doing more. Uh, if this podcast resonated with you and you really enjoyed it, even if you didn't, I would really appreciate if you left a five-star review, said some nice words about me, about Drew, does a, does a lot to help grow the audience and grow the podcast. And if something in this podcast resonated with you and you think it might have a positive impact on somebody that you love, go ahead and share it with them as well. Uh, and reach out to Drew. Reach out to me. Let me know what you thought. Uh, thank you, Drew. I really appreciate you taking the time, brother. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, man, it was good. I like these kind of deep conversations, so I appreciate it. Yeah, we'll do it again soon, for sure. Sounds good.